Elaine Shay Chow joins us to talk about her debut novel, Disorientation, an interwoven satire that grapples with the ever-present danger Asian Americans face when racism rears its ugly head in the world of academia. PhD hopeful Ingrid Yang is beginning to unravel as she struggles with writing her dissertation on the late Chinese poet Xiao Wen Chao. A clue from the library's archive helps her to uncover that Xiao Wen Chao is not dead, nor is he Asian, but rather a white man living his days in retirement after using yellowface as a tool to gain literary success for 35 years. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we have a very special guest with us. We are joined by Elaine Shea Chow, who is a Taiwanese-American writer from California, a 2017 Rona Jaffe Foundation Graduate Fellow at NYU, and a 2021 NYSCA NYFA Artist Fellow. Her short fiction appears in Black Warrior Review, Guernica, Tin House Online, and Plowshares. Disorientation is her first novel. Welcome to the show, Elaine. How are you doing this morning? Uh, thank you so much, Veronica and Denny. I'm so happy to be here. Um, yeah, I'm so excited for this. Well, we are, are definitely excited to talk to you um, about disorientation. Mm. It is a beautiful, uh, it's, it looks beautiful. We're going to get into the cover eventually. Yeah, but it's um, a crazy roller coaster It's a ride. crazy story, and we can't <laughs> wait for everybody to read it. Um, but before we start with questions about the book, this is where I pass it on over to Denny. Yes, we just like to, you know, get to know you a little bit better. Put to you by putting you in the hot seat right off the bat. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so uh, just, you know, five fun questions to kind of get us in the groove. Um, so our first question would be, what was your favorite junk food to eat while you were in college? In college? Mm, oh, God. Okay, let me think. I feel like I know I had really bad eating habits. <laughs> um. I ate, yeah, I was eating all the time at, you know, the, the, the school cafeteria um, and they had an unlimited dessert and ice cream bar. So that was not good for, me. <laughs> I definitely indulged in that. And then I remember, I'm trying to think of like the snacks I would eat. I remember I was always drinking Capri Sun, which in retrospect, I'm like, Capri Sun is categorically bad. It does not taste good. I don't know why I was guzzling that. So, um, so I always had some Capri Sun in my tiny like dorm room mini fridge. And 
I remember I'd eat um, baby bell cheese as, as like, that was like a fun snack. Now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, that's like annoyingly kind of healthy. Why was I, well, <laughs> I, I wish I had more bad. I mean, I was definitely eating like chips and candy and stuff like that, but yeah, I can't remember if there was one specific, oh, I loved Ruffles um, sour cream. What is it? Right. The sour, the, the cheddar, the cheddar yeah. one. Is- the sour, yes, yes. The tri- sour cream and cheddar flavor. Yes. I love those. Now I remember that I would buy like the giant bag and just work my way through in like a week or something. <laughs> it always has been, um, for me was like boba and like the tall, sickly, sugary boba and, <laughs> um, ramen noodles, the dry kind. Oh, ramen. Definitely. Mm. Ramen definitely, and then so also you, popcorn for me. Like oh, still up to this still day. Still popcorn. There was a break because I ate so much of it in cup. <laughs> there was popcorn phase there. Um, Asian food that reminds you of home. Oh, um, I would say let's see those those little yogurt drinks. My oh. parents would always buy and freeze because they come in all different. There's like different brands, but we would call it Yang Le Duol. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, it's just like that. That's what I think of it. That I think of, um, hmm, you know, those crackers, they're like rice crackers that are sweet, but a little salty. Yes. They have like little dots on it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I still don't know the name of those, but I remember that was something my house just always had. And my dad would put it in my little lunchbox um so that's something I associate with home yeah oh what a lovely question <laughs> I, I remember those little yogurt drinks we call it Yakult because I am from the Philippines and I think that's the brand mm, so mm. yogurt drink my mom would just call it Yakult mm, <laughs> it's like you know the toothpaste bread is always Colgate right right <laughs> Kleenex yeah exactly yeah, exactly <laughs> The subject you detested the most in college. Oh my God. Um, so I was a English major. I was a humanities major, but they still forced us to do a year of vague science math subjects just, but it, but it was like geared towards humanities majors. So I remember, um, <laughs> oh yeah, like for my math requirement, I could take linguistics and then I also took like a physics of music um, class and I don't know why they thought like oh and the chemistry of cooking okay so see they trick you they trick you into being like physics of music chemistry of cooking like this sounds like it'll be enjoyable it is just straight pure chemistry and straight pure physics and they try to trick and it was so hard for me because I just my brain doesn't work well in that way. I've always struggled with anything involving numbers. And so those classes were brutal for me. I was just like, ah, oh, I don't why I already had to suffer through what like 12 years of learning math and science. Just let me read my little novels and poems now, you know? <laughs> and I was so annoyed. I had to like cram for these terrible tests and somehow squeaked through like I think I'd always manage like a b or something you know but just 
barely, barely hanging on. That's torture right there. Yeah, I don't like physics. I don't like chemistry. Shout out to all my teachers. I made it though, but physics, I cannot comprehend. I know it's so like hard. It's like the real thing. And I'm like, what the fuck? This is not their real deal. <laughs> uh, fondest memory while you were in academia. Oh, okay. Yes, I do have one. Yeah, so I did two and a half years of a PhD. Um, I was I was in France doing this, and I, my university it was the University of Paris Three. Um, they had a a partnership with the University of Montreal, mm-hmm. and they had this one week seminar called Border Crossings, and it was like a sort of funded fellowship. So. Um, we got to go to Montreal for one week where they paid for the flights and they paid for us to stay in, in basically like one of their dorms. And I was with two of my, um, friends and, you know, we technically had seminars, I think maybe like Monday through Friday, but we were just on vacation. (laughs) So (laughs) my memory of that trip is just. Montreal in in May was so beautiful. It was like perfectly warm. I just remember we'd go on picnics and we'd just walk around and explore the city. I'd never been to Montreal before and it's it's so beautiful. All the buildings are different colors, really cute. And I just remember having a great time that week. So what's funny is my my memory is not really connected to any of the <laughs> actual academic stuff we did. It, it was just this feeling of, oh, wow, we're being paid yeah. to like hang out together and um, That's just enjoy the city. So if you had all, this is our last question. So if you all have your resources, time, money, et cetera, whatever you need, which Asian country are you most excited to see? And which of your characters are you going to bring with to explore this country? Ah, uh, okay. I got to say Taiwan, even though I've been there a lot and I live there. Um, I just miss it a lot right now. I haven't been able to go back since, I believe, 2017. And it, it feels like a long time now. I really miss it. Um, and so I would, I would bring Ingrid because she's never been. (laughs) And at the end of the book, I don't think it's spoil. It's a spoiler, but, um, you know, she plans to go back for the first time. And, um, she's also going to visit South Korea with Eunice, but yeah, I would bring Ingrid to Taiwan so she can experience this place, this really wonderful place where, um, her parents are from. I think for her to connect to, yeah, this part of herself that she denied for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, right now in this moment, I would love to go to Taiwan, but there are also just so many Asian countries I've never been to before that I really want to go to. And yeah, I've never been anywhere in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. I would love to to visit Vietnam and Thailand and I've never been to South Korea. I'd love to go there. We'd love to go to the Philippines. I've never been either. Yeah, there's so many places I want to go. We're going we're gonna to take a tour. <laughs> we're going to take off for like three months and we're just going to go because <laughs> I've never been to Taiwan. My husband um, is Chinese, 
but his parents are from Hong Kong. So, you know, a lot of a lot of different kinds of things in between. But yeah, I have oh, I've only been in the airport of South Korea. I would mm-hmm. actually want to go out of the airport. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that would be ideal. Yeah. That <laughs> was a stopover that I truly enjoyed. I'm like, if the airport is like this, imagine what the country is. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, before we get started, why don't you give our listeners a little quick synopsis on uh, what dissertation is about? Disorientation. I'm, I'm sorry. Disorientation. <laughs> no um, worries. It involves oriented at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, yeah. It, a lot of it is about this uh, non-existent dissertation. So that makes sense. Um, <laughs> what is it about? So I, I have a little log line I came up with, and <laughs> that I feel like sort of encapsulates the the heart of the book, which is what happens when a student who's clueless about race discovers the most racist secret at her university. Mm, <laughs> Just that, imagine that uh, said in like a, <laughs> a movie trailer voice. But yeah, it follows Ingrid Yang, who's Taiwanese American and she's 29 years old. So she's the student who's clueless about race and really sort of embodies that model minority um, myth and um, she's engaged to a white translator, Stephen Green. And so, yeah, the book really follows the f- sort of the buildup and then the fallout of this secret and how it reverberates through her entire life and affects all her relationships. And she really has to step back and look at herself right? Like what has brought her to this (laughs) moment in her life? Why has she turned a blind eye to so many things? And yeah, I would say that's, that's sort of the heart of the book. Um, But yeah, that's, it's also like a, a fun caper, you know, there's a little sleuthing (laughs) mystery and solving going on too. And a lot of humor. Oh, yes. Satire. It's the humor is all up and through this book. It's a it's an amazing book. I'm just curious. I'm always curious. I wonder like what was the process of for you to write this? How long did it take you um, to get through writing disorientation? Oh, thank you guys. Um, the process, yeah. I I think it, the process took a while. I think for me, <laughs> um, most basically four years. I wrote the bulk of it from 2016 to 2020. And then, you know, I revised after the continued revising. But um, during those four years, I wrote three different versions um, starting from scratch. So each time just convinced I had failed and would never write a novel. Um, But each version, I think, you know, I needed to write to get to this version Um, not that it's perfect or anything, but I think I just struggled so much to find the specific voice this character needed and that this, the book needed. Um, so yeah, like the first version, Ingrid is a lot older. She's 49, married to a congressman (laughs) and they have two kids and the, it's, it's a multi POV. So we actually get all four POVs. So she's not technically the main character. And then in the second version, I, I scrapped all of all three POVs and just kept hers. 
-hmm. And I wrote it in the first person. (laughs) So this one, she's like 35 and engaged to a tech bro who he sort of becomes Thad. Remember Thad with his like startup. So she, she was engaged to a version of Thad (laughs) and, um, but yeah, first person truly did not work. I think it was good for me to really get in her head though, and sort of how she sees the world. And then, yeah, the third version was I went back to the third person and um, yeah, sort of these different characters, they just sort of manifesting, you know, like finally there were different versions of Steven, but he finally became Steven as we know him. And then um, there was a, a two versions, I guess, of Vivian and the, finally, you know, she manifested and uh, so yeah, and the third version, I think, because I'd been toying with these different characters and ideas, they could solidify in this version. How did you know that, okay, this is exactly where I want the book to go? How did you know the third was was it? Honestly, I was probably tired. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I mean, I think what happens is it's very common for writers to, after a certain point in time, feel distant or even sort of like loathing for your own writing you're just like uh like everything makes you cringe you're like why did I write this you know if if we let ourselves always I I think that's inevitable and it just speaks more to writing insecurities and imposter syndrome versus the the actual text necessarily but I think if you listen to that uh, voice that you shouldn't listen to, you know, we'd, we'd never actually send the book out. Right. We'd never say it was done. Cause I think writers, you know, it's easy for us to just for years, tinker away, trying to find perfection, whatever that means. And I think at the end of the third version, at that moment in time, I was like, I, I've run, I've done, I've reached my limit. Like, I don't know what else I have left to give. <laughs> I truly may just give up forever if I don't stop at this juncture and try and just send it out and see what happens. You know, maybe if I had kept it for another six months or a year, I would have had that distance of like, I hate this. This is garbage. I need to throw this away. And you know what I mean? But I'm glad that I just sort of acted on sort of maybe that build up of four years I've been trying and trying that it was like, okay, it's now or never lane, just go for it. And um, yeah, so I don't know if I really knew that it was, this was it, but it was just, I had reached my capacity, my mental, emotional, physical capacity <laughs> for writing. Yeah, because this, the topics that you put in the, in the book, though you know satirical and funny are very heavy subjects so I understand where you're coming from you're just like I'm exhausted and I'm tired because we're gonna get into that but yes but I'm glad that you had that like you know what I'm just doing it because it is this book is very important so let's get into the, the the book cover um I remember the first time I heard about your your book uh Juliana the publicist uh she sent us the blurb and everything. And I was like, I, I think we should read this. Um, but it was when I saw the cover, I could not stop t- 
thinking about this cover. It's such an amazing cover. And prior to the release, you posted about how the cover came to be after collaborating with an artist by the name of, um, is it Aaliyah? Yeah, Aaliyah. Aaliyah uh, Morawski. Will you talk to us about how you and Aaliyah came together to come up with this idea of this 3D diorama that will become the iconic cover that it is? Oh, thank you. This is, I mean, thank you as if I'm taking credit. No, really everything, <laughs> the credit should go to Aaliyah and, and also her uh, creative partner, Sam Copeland. That Yeah, they worked so hard building this um, with a pretty short turnaround too. And um, but yeah, how it all came to be was I, I cold emailed Aaliyah, you know, found her website because I'd followed her for several years. She makes snail art that is so beautiful and whimsical and sort of eerie. And yeah, I think she's a genius. So <laughs> I've loved her work for um, many years and I, I just cold emailed her truly thinking she would not answer me because I just assume, you know, she's too busy. She's getting commissioned by Apple and Gucci and Prada. Like, why would she respond to little old me? And she responded so fast and was like, I've been looking for, you know, a project like this. Like, this is it, it like it was sort of fate, you know, that I reached out to her at this exact time. She was sort of looking for something like this. And um, we just started talking on Zoom about different scenes from the book that sort of encapsulate some, you know, parts of the um, major parts of the book and that would be visually interesting. So we ran through, you know, different scenes and scenarios and the one that we settled on is Ingrid's bedroom or technically her and Steven's bedroom um, during the night of her birthday when she comes home and Steven is naked and he's <laughs> <laughs> laid out this Japanese schoolgirl costume on the bed as sort of their role-playing, you know, sensei, schoolgirl yeah, <laughs> role-play situation that Ingrid has happily partaken in before, but like at this moment, you know, she's beginning to question things, things are starting to unravel and she basically freaks out when she sees it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's sort of the heart of the scene that we try to capture and of course make it disoriented <laughs> with the yeah. objects floating. And um, yeah, I'm just so amazed that, you know, at the amount of love and care that was put into each object, like the um, outfit was sewn by hand the little waffle dogs are made from polymer clay. They're really this big. And Aaliyah mailed them to me as these good luck charms afterwards. And I, I cherish them so much. They're just, you know, I don't know, like less than an inch big. It's amazing. And, you know, they didn't even use Photoshop to um, float the images. Cause if you turn the camera, you can see their wires holding them up. Wow. Yeah. Just such a dedication to it making everything with their hands from scratch and I'm just so glad you you bring up the cup brought up the cover because it's um yeah I want their hard work to be recognized and yeah thank you you're welcome because it I, I love looking at this book it's a it's an amazing cover um and and 
getting people ready for when the book was getting ready to be released. I I know you did a special giveaway and it was uh it was the book and it was a very special toy and we wish that you could have done like a small run of waffle dog toys. <laughs> the one you made was so cute. Do you know who ended up winning it? Like did you have to send it to them? Yeah, yeah, or no the um marketing person at Penguin sent it to them. But yeah, um Wilson Wilson was the the winner of the waffle dog. Yeah, so that was it was a felt waffle dog that I really like to craft. And I think crafting sort of I can use my artistic, you know, whatever, feel artistic without having to write. It's like a nice break. Um, so I love to craft. And yeah, I just tried to watch YouTube videos where they were making felt hot dogs because of course nobody had made like a felt waffle dog but I would study the hot dog videos and then the waffle videos and then I just sort of combine them to try and make um a waffle dog oh that's so nice you remember the waffle so dog cute. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wish we could have one. Oh, I wish too we could have somehow had like you know those um stress balls like it would have been so cute to have a stress waffle dog we can just release (laughs) all our stress maybe for the paperback release yes i love that yes we'll revisit that (laughs) put it in our back pocket and send them send them out to colleges college students working on their phd Mm, yeah (laughs) (laughs) so actress jennifer kim is the narrator of your novel she was the perfect fit to read your novel. How much involvement did you have in choosing who you wanted to read the book? Um, oh, thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, I've been meaning to shout her out and say how much I appreciate her talent. And just I'm I'm so glad I had this amazing actress as the as a narrator um, and her character. I don't know if you guys watch season watch season two of Search Party or no season three. Anyway, she's in Search Party and she plays this character, Agnes Cho, and she's so funny and deadpan. And so when um, the Penguin Random House audio team came to me with options, I realized Jennifer Kim was that actress, Agnes Cho, this character that I had loved. And I was like, oh my God, it's her. It's gotta be her. Like, are you kidding? I can have this actress, you know, that is just seeing how she played that character I knew she could her comedic timing Mm -hmm. was spot on I knew she could do deadpan I knew she just like it was her so it it was a very easy decision in that way and that I had already been a sort of fangirl um and yeah I'm really appreciative Jennifer took on this book that has quite a bit of Mandarin Jennifer is um, Korean American. And so I was really appreciative that she was willing to, to, yeah, have to like pronounce some words in Mandarin. And um, I tried, like we sent different recordings or I sent recordings, but I was also very skeptical of my, if I was accurately pronouncing things. So (laughs) I have a, my dad helped me. I would be like, dad tell me how to pronounce this word properly and I would really try and then um my very dear friend Rachel Huang she's a teacher a Mandarin teacher she 
very kindly recorded everything too and sent me me the clips and then I sent them to Penny Random House just so to have you know uh, a right two versions so at least like we can get close as close as possible to accuracy and I was like just just listen to Rachel she knows what she's doing <laughs> this is her career but I'm re- yeah I'm really grateful for for just sort of that team effort just like people in my life like my dad and this very dear friend from college just coming to help and make this as you know as as good as it could be yeah, it takes a it takes a village to put out a book it takes a lot of work to create something like that and wanting it to be correct in in all different ways so shout out to to those folks helping you um if you were to pair your novel with a movie two two come to mind for me and that mm-hmm. would be dear white people and a movie called monster that just came out this year and um, so you, we're watching these main characters in these stories, making, uh, having to navigate through the halls of white academia and their social and personal lives where whiteness and racism is at the core. And it brings to light that no matter how hard one tries to get through life, it's quite difficult to steer clear of the constant white gaze. Um, is this one of the things that you wanted to point out in regards to Ingrid's story? Yeah, yeah. Avoiding that white gaze. I think something I was really um, disturbed by that I wanted to dig into was how much of the white gaze or what we could also call maybe like white narratives have dominated my life and the life of um, Asian women and femmes. I I was giving this example last week, like you know, when I was born into this world in the 80s, at that moment in time, there were already so many problematic depictions of Asian women, right, in media and books as there's like, you know, the dragon lady stereotype, um, the like submissive, quiet, whatever, lotus flower. There's also, you know, like those popular depictions in um uh, full metal jacket, th- those phrases that are that like haunt, <laughs> I think many Asian women, those existed in the world. When I was born, I had no control over them. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't consent to being portrayed in this way. And yet I suffered the consequences. Yeah. So I think it made me really angry to step back and realize so much of I've I've had really bad things happen to me, I think, because of this assumption that Asian women are submissive, weak, unthreatening, hypersexual, all these things. I've literally have felt and borne the consequences of these false uh, myths and stereotypes. And None of it was under my control. I never, I, I, you know, was born into a world where these were seen as truths. And mm-hmm. I never had anyone ask, is this true? Do you consent to being portrayed in the world this way? Obviously, all of us would be like, no, <laughs> we do not consent. We never consented. And that's that feeling of like, 
white narratives, white supremacist myths are so overpowering, they literally dictate our lives. Mm. And so with Ingrid, I wanted to explore like when these narratives are so overpowering, what happens when your personality begins to change? So at one moment in the book, she talks about, you know, does she act in a certain way because people expect her to, as in, you know, her personality almost becomes warped by all the things when, when so many people expect you to be something, it crowds out. I think it can crowd out who you really are Mm -hmm. and take over. And so, yeah, I wanted to explore like that. This, this is not just a simple case of quote unquote representation, right? That term I think is like, has been so overused. People don't even know what it means anymore. Like I, what I wanted to talk about was uh, us bearing the consequences. There are real consequences. This is honestly, you know, a life and death situation Um, when Asian women are being targeted, assaulted, murdered. It's like, we have to talk about representation as more than, you know, ticking off a box or something, but like, yeah you know, be careful of what you do with the, how you wield your pen, whether for screenwriting or books, because our lives are at stake. And I think, yeah, I was, it's really frustrating when people who have no stakes in what they're doing, like making up these horrible lies about Asian women. It's like, oh yeah, fun for you. You just get to, you have no stakes in this. You, you get to live a life where you're not affected. We don't have that privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I went on for a long time because it just makes me so, it was one of the things that was so motivating for me to write. Like I had so much anger about this. <laughs> well, because like it really talks about the, you know, the autonomy of the body. Like what, you know, when someone takes us and makes it, in a way for them to be able to place these stereotypes, these horrible racist stereotypes upon us, you know, like you said, it strips this power away from us and it can cause us harm. And we've seen it, we see it every single day on how it continues to cause harm. And like you said, you know, people have to be very careful about the things that they write and the things that they put out that just because you call it fiction, does not mean that the person who is taking all of this information is going to say, oh, this possibly can't be real, that this is just fiction. People take this to heart and say, oh, if it's there, it must be real because nobody's saying that it isn't. And that's exactly. what they're doing to, you know, bring sound the alarm to that, right? Yeah. And that's why, you know, like when I read this book, I felt like your rage. Like I felt that rage and I felt that anger and the power. Like, you know, we we would joke like, oh, you know, it can make you laugh out loud or it's a satire because you have to do that in order to like, for me to maintain like your sanity while writing all of this shit, Mm -hmm. you know? And you feel very much targeted as a, you know, as a young Asian woman or femme. And like you said, these people can walk around and dictate whatever they want us to be and yet don't suffer the consequence. Mm-hmm. I think when I was like, maybe, you know, in the, when, when we have discovered what, 
what the mystery or you know of the book I was like this is what she's trying for us and for the reader to see Mm -hmm. and to me that was just so effective even though like it's it's hard to read like sometimes for me as an Asian American woman Mm -hmm. but I think it's important for other people to realize the struggle it's not something that you treat very lightly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, the book is, I, yeah, yeah, it's often described in words like um, uh, zany, absurd, um, you know, ways that w- it might make you think it's like that I didn't write with very high stakes in mind, but I wrote it, yeah, hoping to convey the, the gravity of like, what we're talking about mm-hmm. um yeah I really appreciate that I really appreciate that you guys got this you know uh you've written a story that uh, takes a number of various serious toxic topics and somehow it's still able to infuse that humor within the story Will you talk about this superpower that I feel like people of color have when we use humor in this in this means of pointing out the obvious and, you know, these crazy circumstances when we live and we try to cope with with it all like we still have to, you know, find that space to to save, you know, basically feel safe when Mm. all of this is, is wrapping around us at the same time. Right. Oh, I love that you call this a superpower. That really makes me think about a lot of media that I have loved that by POC that I think is precisely maybe because there is this phenomenon of you feel it's for us, by us, when there's joy involved. Mm -hmm. And when we, I feel like when we laugh at our oppressors, it is giving us a level of power that we simply don't have in the real world. Mm. And it makes me think of like, like I was talking, I've, I've heard this conversation before, like talking to friends about, you know, oh, I can recognize 12 Years a Slave is an important movie, but I literally will never watch that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and even, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but you know, Lena Waits them did you guys um (laughs) well I was hearing so many awful stories about how there's like an extremely graphic extremely racist violent just I don't even want to describe what happens to this black um female character uh I think what a white man does to her and it's it's described as so horrific I was hearing yeah people in the black community be like who is this for? Because I am not, after a day's work of hard work, I don't go home, sit on the couch to be traumatized, right? right? By like this, why would I want to watch a white man like do something so horrific to a black, like how, who is this? And, And that's, I think so important when we talk about what it, what does, I guess, liberation on the screen or the page look like and mean and it's like yeah I would much rather watch a show um like Atlanta or Rami or um uh how my oh well I made a story you does have dark moments but it's still like all these I, I feel like these stories where there is dark humor and dark comedy 
it it allows us to see the truth of mm -hmm. like white supremacist um misogynistic mm -hmm. truths right but we're also able to watch it unfold from a position of safety like you said like we feel safe when we can laugh at them and and sort of hold it at arm's length and I think yeah now that when you describe it as like a phenomenon that's like a superpower I'm like yeah maybe this is because this is the this is the only way we can get through it in a way that feels for us right includes us versus like shutting us out and re-traumatizing us <laughs> exactly re-traumatizing is is huge um so you like you said earlier you talked about you wanted to destroy these asian stereotypes you know the model minority myth the asian women being seen as docile unopinionated and submissive creatures not even humans um and you know that rage is on the page how are you able to take care of yourself like mentally while you were going through these processes because this is some to me that's like the most important factor for you as a writer to be like you know sanity sanity that I make out mm. I make it out through this while writing like my truth yeah yeah um I mean I think funnily enough it was when I would get to sit down and write that was when I would feel in my life the most freedom and control because, um, you know, like when I started writing this book, I was living in France, which is just very racist. <laughs> and, you know, I would go through a day having people shout me how at me and say other, you know, racist shit and getting to go home and live in this fictional world where I was in control was that that was I think healing for me it was therapeutic it was like you know instead of going to therapy which I'm not saying I recommend guys go to therapy <laughs> at that point it was just like that that's what I was using I think as therapy so yeah instead of it being triggering um even though there are hard topics in this I think it really helped me to mm -hmm. gain distance from it to feel I had a modicum of control in my life when so many other things like someone's decision to shout at you from across the street like that's so out of my control right but in writing I felt I could find it and also I do think looking back now there were a couple moments where I was like, like doing a like internet rabbit hole spiraling uh, like I write about it a little in this essay where I found this reddit forum uh that just listed a lot of for example like murders of white men uh, white men murdering asian women often their girlfriends and wives and um i think at first i might you know you might feel like the inclination to i must put this in the novel i must write about this and eventually i put it in this essay but i think i realized it messed me up so much. Like it did put me in a very dark place mentally. It was like, I need to step away from this. Um, and so, yeah, I think there were times when I would come across certain things in my loosely defined research of you know, going on Reddit or just reading the news where it's like, okay, this is very upsetting, 
but I think I realized I was, I couldn't touch it. It was like, okay, I don't, I can't delve into this. Um, and so, yeah, a few times that would happen when I just really realized like, it's not gonna be good for me to spend too much time like in this mental space. And then I, I just put it away. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that I really thought that essay and those, these thoughts about these murders would just stay in like a word document until I die. <laughs> but I am glad now that, yeah, it found a way, like it wasn't meant to be, I think in the novel. Um, there is one murder that, you know, Alex uh, thinks about, like he goes onto these like MR Asian mur- uh, forums. And so it, there's a mention of one real murder that happened, but that was as far as I was willing to go in the novel. <laughs> Yeah, when you when you talked about that, I'm like, you did your research for this. To me, that's how I felt like, because not 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 wanting to go back to the murders, but I actually know of a person personally was my teacher, in in my university that um, was a girlfriend. I don't know if they ever got married, um, but she was my teacher, and she was murdered by a white man, and that was something very real for me. And it was years after I've. Um, transplanted myself from the Philippines to America and she was in the middle of the Midwest mm, oh so. my god that is horrific I'm so I sorry I'm so sorry too you know like like you said like these things we like it beyond our control towards what they want to do with our bodies mm. so when I you know and I appreciated that too that you know you don't want to go back to the traumatic experience but it is important to make mention of it. So if people are really paying attention, they can look it up and then, you know, educate themselves about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, you know, the notes in the back of the book, I'm like, you know, this is, this is something that people should invest time in. Mm. And, you know, I'm just like, you know, like you said, like in order for you not to feel numb, you kind of have to step away on the subjects that you think are too much you know, but it's important to make mention to not make light of the situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, it just says so much that this is like fiction and reality. Like this happened to you, like, you know, to someone close to you that you knew and it just speaks to how real it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did want to, I think with the notes, it was a tactic of protection Mm-hmm. against claims that you know white people like the first the first thing they always want to claim is we would never go that far yes right give us some credit you're exaggerating and I wanted proof that you have gone this far mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I don't need to make up the extent of your racism mm-hmm. and hatred for us and you know disregard for our humanity like these are these are the receipts yeah you know you know and I definitely yeah it was a way for me to try to protect from those accusations that I knew would come that's a huge point because it's also not only like them saying like we would never it's also well we you know this was this happened so long ago mm. you know like this mm. moment is detached from us whereas like no this moment is an extension of you and it should be a mm. con- should be a continued 
extension in order for you to remember this is what we should not do right and wow. your article in the cut it you know at the at the end i love how you say you know like you're not going anywhere and that you are listening and let people know like we know what's up we know what's going we're going to call you out on it right mm -hmm. and it's and it's very important that that happens let us go back in into the book and um mm -hmm. talk about the characters so through ingrid uh, though Ingrid is the main character of the story, we see that she has these these three nuance. She has these uh, relationships with two other girls within the book, which is Eunice and her like semi nemesis, I guess in a way, <laughs> Vivian. Um, <laughs> for president. <laughs> <laughs> is it fair to say that at times these three women are all dealing with making an attempt at finding out who they want to be outside of the pressures and expectations of their surrounding world? Mm, yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think um, each of those characters, I wanted to give them a sense of um, contradiction in themselves, you know? And so like with Vivian, this came a lot later in her building her character but um she yeah so she's this very radical activist on campus and we find out later on that as a teenager she was actually uh conservative and and not just that but was really sort of pushing conservative views and um it, it clicked in a place that of course she has been shaped by that right this i think she carries the shame of who she used to be and so so much of what she try she tries to do in the present i think is to repair that uh you know former self and um sort of get as far away as possible as she can from that former mm -hmm. teenage self and um i think towards the end of her well not the end of her journey but you know at the end of the book we see that yeah she has like a breakdown <laughs> essentially and I think all of it is this culmination of her trying to yeah figure out who she really is what she what she can give right she basically wants to save the world and wants to be unimpeachable mm -hmm. and she puts all this pressure on herself to not only sort of save the Asian community, but all marginalized communities. And I think I wanted for her at the end to realize she is important to save too. Like you have, she has to take care of herself before she can ever take care of other people, you know? And it's, um, I think I, I've seen this with like the past few years when we were having a surge of, um, you know, activists really having to take on so much emotional stress and these pressures I was seeing activists have that burnout and being like guys I'm on the verge of a mental breakdown I need to step away and it's like yeah of course like you are not only healing from you know for example a police shooting and trying to recover from that as a person but like you're out there you know protesting putting your body in in line of like other cops like like all and then 
And then online, you're probably doing all this emotional labor. People are, white people are coming to you asking, how can I be an ally? <laughs> like all of that, I think is so intense that I definitely did worry about activists and in like the times where I was an organizer and I could feel myself pushing myself, pushing myself that, you know, Lane, you have to be on top of everything. You have to show your rage and your pain all the time. Like it no longer begins to feel private, you know? And I remember if anything bad happened in the world, like I would feel this pressure that I had to immediately talk about it or else people would be like, oh, do you not care anymore? And then it was just insane because it's like, I'm a person who also needs to heal. (laughs) And yeah, it's really hard, right? Because we don't necessarily want the white allies, whatever that means, you know, quote unquote allies to do this work. Like, I don't want them to be the face Mm -hmm. of like, you know, anti-racist liberation. And at the same time, I'm like, but us taking it on has such a toll on us too. And so I think it's so important for us to always step back and make sure we are taking care of ourselves Mm -hmm. uh, first. So, you know, like you're talking about putting yourself out there, but there's also other Asian Americans that are swimming in self-hate, but they don't know that they're swimming in self-hate, mm. i.e. Mm. Tim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Timothy. Yeah, are we talking about, yeah, Timothy Liu? Yes. So when I see people like him, I often question myself, you know, what trauma did you have to go through mm. for you to be like this? Mm. it's always just like have me this feeling like I need to save you as well you know like I need to save you I need to protect you because you are like me and I am like you essentially Mm. so how do you think as we as Asian Americans can process these like feelings healthily and not just like you know oh let me just bury this in my subconscious and let it let it go away because you know if he doesn't want to do this then maybe like you know f him you know So I've always had that, like, wanting to be like, but come here, though. Like, let me show you the light. Mm. Right. Yes. This is such an important question that we have to talk about. Because I think, like, my past self, like, I do remember in, you know, circa, I don't know, like, 2017 or, or so. Like, I would be on Facebook groups if I met an Asian, a fellow Asian who, um, but they had like pro-police views or they wanted to end affirmative action, just like general (laughs) anti-Blackness. My instinct was like, block. (laughs) Like literally I would scream at them, you know, on, you know, typing and then, and then like block. (laughs) And I think it's in recent years that I've realized it's like, it's so hard to engage with these people, but then I worry that when they feel shut out by the Asian American community at large, that they might seek out places where they feel welcome, mm-hmm. aka a alt-right forum. Right. <laughs> or, you know, there are all these toxic places on the internet where like they their thoughts can be approved and they feel welcome and they feel like they don't have people shouting at them. They have people agreeing, you know, white supremacists being like, yeah, you're right. Affirmative action is wrong. And we support you. Like, 
I don't want them to go to that side. I don't want them to get sucked in to like even more racist ideology. So it's like, how do we have these conversations when we're both really mad at each other, right? I think during this month, right, Asian American um, Heritage Month, like so many people are, there is this, this overlying belief that like this month exists in solidarity with each other. Hmm. And it's like, yes, but there, <laughs> we are also really mad at a lot of different, you know, you know, like someone who has, unfortunately, a very similar name to mine, Elaine Chow, mm. literally mm. propagating like the white devil's <laughs> policies and has supported, I think, one of the most racist, harmful people in American history, Mitch McConnell, right? Like, that is so painful to me. And that it's so hard to sort of what even when I think about, I feel like my heart rate going up. It's like, yes. I'm angry at her, right? And and it's it's like, how can I? My first instinct is to not re- want to engage with her at all. Um, and it's I think it is really hard to find how do we, when there's so much division in the Asian American community, and there is right, like hardcore conservatives, and of course, really amazing radical activists it's like how do we bridge that what how do we talk to each other without yeah just screaming at each other um I don't know I'm still trying to figure it out right that's a puzzle that's a puzzle yeah. that's something that I think about constantly because it's Me like too. you know that in order for us to get to the promised land we got to get there together like this mm. is not a process that can just work with us mm. we have to include everybody and you sit and you fit, try to figure out like what can I say to persuade someone, convince, change their mind, and I, I honestly I wish I knew the answer. If anybody's out there listening, <laughs> get the books, give them this orientation, <laughs> bridge the gap, let them see that. You know, I guess one prime example would be we had a, a writer by the name of Dante Stewart on, and he wrote a book called Shouting in the Fires, his memoir. And it talks about how he lived in this state of self-Black hate. Um, he was a student at Clemson, loves God. And, you know, at the time he was on the football team and then he was no longer the starting member of the football team. And so he, this thing that he attached himself to, he no longer had and was trying to find himself, right? And so he ended up finding himself being involved with a white evangelical church and kind of fell into that. And so then this was during the time of like Trayvon Martin and everything was starting to happen. And he talks about how he had no, there was no rage. There was no uh, being upset at what was happening, saying that it was their fault that they shouldn't have resisted arrest or did whatever. And there was one murder that happened and his wife was he's like my wife was in tears and I didn't quite understand and she was confused that he wasn't feeling the same thing and it was a conversation that he had with a co-worker who basically was like bro like this is happening to us like why don't you wake up and see what's going on and he began to really make those questions you know questions mm-hmm. so I guess it calls upon us when it's our own to be like yo you know what why is this not clicking for you like Mm -hmm. we are not allotted the same grace 
as they mm-hmm. give themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not allotted the same status as they give themselves. Like this is allotted for them. And we need to figure out a way for us to like, you know, uplift the entire group of people. But it's so hard when right have people who stand in opposition, right? And just think that they're not us, that they're them or there's something else that mm. Yeah, they have to, they have to understand it's like a really, I think, tricky place if like you said, they grew up or are surrounded by a white majority space, they have to completely remove themselves from needing white approval, white adjacency, and realize we are in a fight for our survival. Mm-hmm. And it does come down to which side are you on? Yeah. Right? Like, I think, we don't have time for this gray area of like, oh, but these people might have a point. These people want to kill us yes, yes. <laughs> and lock us up. They do not think we have humanity. Like we cannot reason with this, these people, you know, and, and I think learning for us to divorce themselves completely from needing their approval is I think that's why when I hear POC sort of hem and haw like oh devil's advocate why don't we see it from this side I'm like I can tell you still crave white approval <laughs> if you sake right if you bring up these I can tell somewhere inside you but once you cut that off completely I feel like that's when like what happened to this person the truth descends and you realize like oh I'm I'm nothing to them mm-hmm. right I've always been nothing to them I cannot count on them to save me I cannot count on them for my freedom I have to disavow them join my people because we can only save ourselves that's right and we have to you know create our own systems and movements language and stop relying on them and trying to succeed in like their old racist institutions right it's like we just so much of it requires, I think, breaking down everything we've been taught. If like, if you grow up in America, like often this is just, we believe in these lies. And Mm -hmm. so it takes, sometimes can take a a lifetime to finally unlearn them and realize like, I've been fed bullshit (laughs) my whole life. And now I see there is a fight for survival and I must choose one (laughs) this Mm -hmm. time. I just recently saw a tweet from um, writer Tressie McMillan Cottom, and she was talking about Cardi B because I guess she has an interview coming out with David Letterman on Netflix. And she was saying how much she loves the fact that Cardi B is so sure of herself, of who she is, because she does not allow to have a white voice in her head and that we have to get to a place where we remove those white voices mm-hmm. and that we just stand in our true authentic self. And I think that's what sometimes messes people up because they're allowing all of these people inside of their head that has nothing to do with us at all and telling yeah. us what we should be and who, where we should go. And it's, it's fucking everything up. Yeah. <laughs> um, you first heard uh, fellow author Daphne Pelosi Andreas read an excerpt from her debut novel Brown Girls at an event that you co-authored called Sweet and Sour. Talk to us about creating this this reading um, and how long did it run and, and what is it like to see those that you've given space to read their works and achieve their goal of becoming authors and having their work read out into the world? Oh 
yeah. Yeah. That's so cool that you found this, this nugget. Um, yeah. The sweet and sour readings was created with another NYU student. We were both um, MFA students and it was held at this um, shop in Chinatown called Chop Suey Club. It's like a really cool hip uh, shop where everything is just, uh, it celebrates mostly art and objects made um, by Asian artists. And yeah, the goal of this, the reading series was to give emerging writers this platform alongside established writers. So we had Gia Tolentino, Alice Sola Kim, and Franny Choi, and um, it was an honor to have them and a great opportunity. What we hoped was for these emerging writers to connect with them and also be given that visibility. So yeah, Daphne, what was so cool is like literally found her on her story on Joyland. And I just saw Daphne last week and we were talking about, she was like, that was my first short story. And I was like, that is amazing that I just like found it online and then, and then emailed her and, you, you know, like it just, and then seeing her, um, this story expand and become a novel was so incredible. And there was another person at the fiction series, Ryan Lee Wong, who, who read, uh, he's so funny, so sharp. And I can't even remember how we found, I think, yeah, we just found some of his writing online, reached out to him and his novel about um, Black and Korean relationships in LA is coming out from Catapult this fall. So it's, it's amazing to see these different writers. Yeah, that like, you know, we were all baby writers and <laughs> seeing how we've grown. And I'm just really glad that there continue to be spaces that are centered around community as um, as healing, as art, as healing. And yeah, it was, when I think about those readings, it, it was really magical. That's awesome. I, I wish there were more spaces like that here. We're, we're based in Orlando. And in Florida. But... Yeah. So <laughs> there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of literary things happening, but I just wish that there were more like, mm. like this. Yes. Um, maybe we just need to create it. Maybe we do. Yeah. yeah, but that's why this is so great, Vulgar Geniuses, you know? <laughs> so are there any future projects that you want the people to know about that you got in the works? Or is your future project just, you know, chilling at home and seeing how life goes? Marlene <laughs> <laughs> and her and her TED talk. Um, <laughs> we, we want to ask her about her future plans. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, yeah, I've definitely been giving myself space to chill and catch up on all these TV shows I've been missing. Yeah, um, yeah I think writers, we need to go through fallow periods, you know, where we're just like a little sponge, just sitting there, not moving, absorbing, but not not opening that word doc. <laughs> Stay away <laughs> from it for your for your mental, you know, health. Um but yeah, so Penguin Press, when they bought the novel, they bought at the same time a short story collection. So that's on the Verizon. I know it's been, it, you know, it's been sitting there looking at me and it's pretty much all done. I just have to revise some stories. And what I'm excited about with the collection, it's actually most of the stories 
particular genre, so or speculatives. There's a horror story. Yeah, there's like fiction. Oh my god. Okay, love it. Yeah, there's uh, a fairy tale. <laughs> there's um, like a, a sci-fi black mirror type of story. There's one with with this Chinese ghost. There's like like I just love speculative. I I love the doors it opens. I feel like mm-hmm. you can explore so many deep and hard issues in a really creative fun way when you when you break open those boundaries of like quote-unquote literary fiction so I'm I'm excited to return to that and and hopefully show readers that yeah I don't I don't just write about academia (laughs) um but yeah what what sort of ties the stories together it's like a lot again about Asian American identity and relationships um and sort of, I love looking at how we're messy and how we we fuck up, right? And it's like the ugly parts of ourselves. So that's there. It's called Where Are You Really From? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it already. <laughs> Question. Like if, I, if I have a tally board for my life, at least 10 or, you know, 10 up per day. Right. I would, I would be rich. Right. I know. Right. Where are you? Where are you really from that? Damn, really in there says it all. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now we have come to the end of our conversation where we like to ask every person that comes on our show, the uh, infamous question. And that is, what are your top five favorite books of all time? Or, or what are the top five favorite books that you are excited about that's coming out from your friends or that you just know that's out in the world that people need to know about? And it, and it has to be five. If you can, if, I mean, if you want more, are you asking if you can be more? Oh, no, I'm trying to think of <laughs> if it could be up to, um, if you if don't I, have a top five, if I have five, hold on, let me think. Um, um, cause I have, I can think of three with a friend for Rithia. Um <laughs> and then for the past ones. But I feel like th- is this this is sure I didn't do my homework. Oh no. Oh, hold on. <laughs> no, we, we gave we gave a talk okay. today. I and think exactly I, how we felt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I have enough to do favorite or just books, yeah, that have been really influential to me. Um, and especially with sort of like the thoughts I've had and disorientation. Okay. So like a book that I was obsessed with that I, I started reading like right before I, I wrote, I sat down to write that I think I was, why the first version didn't work in a lot of ways. Cause I was trying to copy him is Paul Beatty's the sellout. And that book mm-hmm. to me was the first book I ever read where I could really sense he does not give a shit about a quote unquote white universal audience, Mm. right? I could tell that book wasn't even written for me. There are so many specific references that I had to Google or that, you know, when I was too lazy to Google, I just, (laughs) but I, it was incredible where I just sensed this complete attitude of like, I don't give a fuck if you get it. I didn't write this for you. And that to me was so liberating because I just felt, felt it's it was rare to see you know so that book ended up being a big influence on on me and just sort of how you can approach really dark subjects with humor um 
another book that I love that is sort of similar in that way is Don Lee's Yellow. So mm-hmm. that book came out, I forget any of double check, it came out in the 90s, I think, but it's, it was the first book I read where there were so many different Asian American characters and types, like, it wasn't just a book about Chinese Americans, like a family saga book, right, about just Korean Americans, about just Jap- Japanese Americans, it was like all of us together, fighting with each other, sleeping together, being messy together, and it was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what my life looks like. My life doesn't, isn't actually segregated into like what I only know Taiwanese American. Like I just hadn't read something like that where we're all mixed up together, where it's not mixed up for each other, but you know, just like hanging out together. (laughs) Um, And I think that ended up being a really big influence on me too. Um, And I also want to shout out Fran Ross's Oreo, Mm. which I read I think when I had started, you know, it'd been a year or so after I started writing the novel, that, that book is so wacky and bold and subversive and was written in 1974, but you would never guess it. Like that book, she just breaks so many rules. She, you could tell that's another book that she really wrote for herself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like a menu in it. There's this chart explaining the you know levels of blackness as she calls them there's uh math equations like I think you could see she just has so much fun with the form of the book and I think that inspired me to you know try and create found objects in the in disorientation like the petition the screenplay the blogs you know things like that it just I think she really inspired me to like yeah you can do that um Okay, so I talked about three. I want to talk about two, I think, because I was just thinking about him today is David Henry Wang, Mm -hmm. who wrote M Butterfly, and also Yellow Face. Um, I think he's, he's another one of those Asian American writers that was, I think, dealing with a lot of these hard, tricky issues um, before it was really widely being talked about. And I think, I owe a lot to like, yeah, he really forged this path. We can talk about that messiness of like um, this Madam Butterfly dynamic that just like won't die out. And um, in Yellow Face, he picks it back up with Miss Saigon Mm -hmm. and how there was, you know, based on real life, there is this, uh, a white character cast to play an Asian character in Yellow Face. And yeah, this is, this is, he was writing about this, like, quite a while ago, you know. Um, okay, and then f- number five, yeah, is this number five? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to say um, Jenny Zhang. I love Jenny Zhang so much. I think um, she blew open the door for me in terms of writing Asian American women that were gross mm-hmm. and were fully just allowed to be themselves in a way. I th- I think it, again, it was reading her work. I was like, oh my God, I haven't read anything like this before where um, I think so many depictions of Asian American women were sort of, even when they were written by other Asian Americans, it just maybe didn't push the pedal all the way down to like 
how fully gross and filthy and shameful or whatever, like just that we can be as human beings, like somehow that had sort of been like not touched on on, on the page. And I think she um, really did that for the first time in a lot of ways. And so I felt really inspired by her. Um, yeah, so I think those are those are my five. <laughs> That's a good solid list right yes. there. <laughs> that was a that was a very good list. Like those are like timeless, timely. You know, hopefully it can just only be timeless and not timely. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, Elaine, it has been a true pleasure and a gift to spend this morning with you to talk about your your wonderful novel. We wish you the the best that is yet to come and we can't see what comes next for you um and just thank you once again for spending this this hour with us yeah thank you for coming here and talk about you know bravely and courageously about what we deal with as asian american women and to me that was really important because you need to hear somebody talk about these things that look like you mm. so mm. that that to me is the true meaning of like representation the most used and abused word Mm. and talking about BIPOC female um, characters so I can't wait for your speculative fiction I I am already like salivating (laughs) murder mystery and speculative fiction is like really like you know what lives in my bones (laughs) oh my god you guys are both amazing I'm really thankful for what you're doing to lift up um, you know writers of color and give us this space hanging out with you spending this time with you it felt really safe and nurturing and like just hanging out with people that I would want to hang out with in real life so thank you thank you thank you so much I felt like we were on just like FaceTime and we're right. like what are we doing later we're we going to the mall no. <laughs> yeah let's go to the mall I wish we could go to the mall together Get a waffle dog. Yeah, get some waffle dogs. (laughs) Aw. All right, Elaine. Well, we're gonna let you go. You have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Take care, both of you. Bye. Bye. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.